you have it. Two possible scenarios that point to us having been created originally on Mars. Professor Benner stated, The evidence seems to be building that we are actually all Martians. That life started on Mars and came to Earth on a rock. It's lucky that we ended up here nevertheless, as certainly Earth has been the better of the two planets for sustaining life. If our hypothetical Martian ancestors had remained on Mars, there might not have been a story to tell. Professor Benner stated, In addition, recent studies show that these conditions suitable for the origin of life may still exist on Mars. Man, that sounds like some good science. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 61. 61. Alright, well... Back in episode 21, we talked 21. about Mars, so that was, what, 40 episodes ago? Yeah. Well, we're going to do it again, and this time we're actually going to get some help, because our guest today is S. Douglas Woodward. He's an author, speaker, and researcher on the topics of the apocalypse, biblical eschatology. He has over 40 years of experience in researching, writing, and teaching on the subject. Uh, he's written several books. He has written, Are We Living in the Last Days?, uh, Decoding Doomsday, Black Sun, Blood Moon, Power Quest Book 1, America's Obsession with the Paranormal, and Power Quest Book 2, The Ascendancy of Antichrist in America. And he co-authored The Final Babylon with Doug Krieger and Dean McGriff. And now he's here to talk to us about his new book called Lying Wonders of the Red Planet, Mars, Ancient Aliens, and the Great Deception of the Last Days. It's Douglas Woodward. How you doing, Doug? Douglas I am good. Thank you, guys. This is the first uh, official unveiling of, uh, of the book, and so uh, I've got several other interviews already scheduled, but this is the first, so hopefully it'll be, uh, it'll be the best, though. There you go. You heard it here first. Canary Cry Radio exclusive. There you go. With Douglas Wordward. Well, good. We're really stoked that you're here. And I'm sure that you took the time to listen to uh, episode 21, Canary Cry Radio, the Mars episode. Oh, I did. I just wish I had listened to it much earlier because I could have quoted you guys in the, in the <laughs> uh, book next- if I had. Next time. Well, yeah, that that was one of our famous episodes just because of how much incredibly mind-blowing ideas were in there. I mean, we had Obama going to Mars. We had all sorts of just outrageous claims. But, you know, I guess maybe we can clear a couple of those up here. Well, I will, I'll, do my, I'll do my part. I have, uh, I have walked across the same paths that you guys uh, covered very nicely. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been listening to uh, that program actually this morning to get myself sort of thoroughly uh, energized. My appetite is fully whetted, so uh, we, will, we will jump in. All right, sounds good. Okay, so before we get into the book too deeply, let's ease into it here. How exactly did um, Mars become an important thing for you to have to express yourself creatively about? Yes, great question. Um, two or three threads. Certainly, um, the whole matter of UFOs has become, of course, a, a very, very big issue in, in, uh, in our time. Um, so uh, hanging out with the likes of people like Tom Horn and L.A. Marzulli and so forth, um, coming across UFOs and the whole issue of the uh, uh, the flying saucer cults and all that—that's uh, that's a big factor. The uh, 
uh, I was intrigued, uh, and like many other folks, probably of similar mindset to us, was sort of sucked into the the, the History Channel's Ancient Aliens TV show, and uh, so uh, you know became a dutiful uh, watcher or viewer of that. I have to be careful when you say watcher, a dutiful right. <laughs> viewer of uh, of that show. And it was very fascinated. Then um, I had done a lot of research on 2012, and there's a huge overlap between sort of the New Age 2012 UFO, aliens as gods kind of uh, mythos. And uh, so I kept hitting across that. And then, um, you know, I think probably the book, uh, Richard C. Hoagland, Mike Vera, Dark Mission, uh, that really got me uh, very interested in it. And so... Uh, you know, I'm probably like a lot of other writer researchers, not that there's a lot of us out there, but there are a few. And, and when you stumble across something that you get just intensely curious about, you really want to start reading and researching. And so, uh, so I've been doing that and, uh, have written, not written, have read dozens and dozens of books on Mars and, and I began to gain a historical perspective. And uh, that historical perspective has led me to certain conclusions. And, and uh, the story you guys talked about a year ago is, is only one of uh, a couple of dozen uh, fantastic stories uh, associated with the planet Mars and, and really gives us some perspective on the whole ancient alien phenomenon in our, in our current day. So that was kind of, kind of how I got to where I am now. Awesome. Now, Let's just start to ease into the book here. You start out the book kind of uh, uh, with the ancient aliens, Antichrist, one world religion. That's actually the name of the first chapter there. Right. Um, why was that kind of the jumping off point? Is there is is that really as a, the the shallow end of the pool there? <laughs> um, well, it, it, I think that uh, the thing I try to do in, in my books is is give people context. Uh, because from context, you know, you, you usually gain some better understanding. And, and um, you know, if, if someone were to just start watching the ancient alien thing, you would think it's like, you know, these guys invented sliced bread. You know, it's like mm-hmm. this is the first time that this, is, that this has come about. And the reality is that the whole phenomenon of, of E.T. As, uh, as God is a, is a cyclic kind of phenomenon in our culture. And uh, it really connects to much deeper uh, issues such as uh, spirituality and and what's true about religion and what's not true. Uh, but I, you know, I just as I, I I wrote the first chapter and and uh, I found myself writing really talking about kind of the political situation in the world. And you know, it just struck me that that uh, this whole thing sets up as as the the future one world religion that eschatologists have been predicting would come to pass and. Of course, I know traditionally Protestants have said, well, it's the Catholics, and Catholics have said, well, it's the Protestants that are really, you know, the, the evildoers, and it's their falsehood that will be the, you know, that will be the final deception, the great deception of Babylon and so forth. But, um, you know, if, if you postulate for a moment, which many of us uh, in this sort of, uh, this realm, we kind of believe that, that the Lord is returning soon, uh, perhaps within a decade, perhaps two decades and you sort of say, well, okay, if that's true, assuming that for the sake of argument, then you start asking questions. You say, well, who is Babylon? And obviously the last book, The Final Babylon, we talk about America as the final Babylon. And in this, in this uh, book, really assuming that the, the final one-world religion 
is uh, is a religion based upon uh, ET, based upon extraterrestrials. Right. And and so the context really was well, you know, in America over the last five or six years, we've had this to some extent it depends, of course, your political views, but a lot of hero worship around our president. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it just struck me. Um, you know, his book, The Audacity of Hope. I thought, well, maybe the the, the right response, given what's happened, especially over this last summer with all the revelations about Edward Snowden and the NSA and Big Brother spying on us and all this stuff was, well, you know, that hope has been sort of ground into dust. It's the audacity of hope in America. It's really the paucity of hope in America right. that, uh, you know, that that president, uh, and, and this is, you know, it's a tough job, right? <laughs> it's a hard <laughs> job. I don't think I'd want it. But there, there's no question that five years ago, when uh, President Obama was elected, there was a tremendous amount of optimism and belief that he was going to work miracles. And it's, uh, it's been, you know, kind of no surprise that a lot of people have conjectured uh, that, you know, that he might be the Antichrist. You no, know, I don't. Right. I never say that. Um, you know, I always, I always look pretty carefully when. Someone goes and stands in front of the, you know, the, the Berlin Wall and talks to 200,000 Germans and talks about um, how exciting the world's going to be. And, and you have commentators <laughs> talk about this is not just the future president of the United States. This is the future president of the world. You right. know, those things get my attention. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then when he goes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, they have a statue uh, of him carved in ice um, and wow. proclaiming, you know, Alliance, uh, peace in our time, uh, the unbreakable alliance between Israel and the United States. These kinds of things make you think, well, uh, you know, I guess he's a candidate. So uh, he's a good yeah. family man, you know, but I guess he's a candidate just given some of those strange things. So, right. so anyway, there's the, that's the context. Okay. Now, just real quick, there's been a lot of stuff on ancient aliens. Chris White that is debunking ancient aliens and things like that. Where do you kind of veer from the um, how do I put it? Uh, the secular ancient aliens theories. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, right. Well, let, let, yeah, I mean, because you know, you cite Jason Calavito uh, quite a bit at the beginning there, and you know, he's right. written extensively on the topic as well. And, yep. and you also bring up, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Ignatius Donnelly. Where does he fit in? Because you know, it was it's interesting to to see, you know, you touch on it briefly of where this whole ancient aliens thing got started, because I think most people know about the history channel. They kind of know, you know, some of the Graham Hancock's and the, you know, some of the other authors that have written right, right. Uh, on similar topics, but, but where, where do you think re- this whole idea really originated from? Yeah. Well, that, that really brings us to the subject of Mars and, um, uh, Jason Colavito and I had a, uh, I don't know if you guys saw the other, we had, uh, a series of sort of back and forth debates uh, that were going on, kind of in his blog and in my blog, and and uh, there was quite a bit of activity on the internet about that. That happened a couple of months ago. I actually find the guy to be uh, pretty—he's a smart guy, he's intelligent, he's a naturalist, as far as I can tell, he's an atheist. Um, and he, and of course, he sees uh, the whole ET ancient alien thing as just—it's a, a crazy falsehood. That was originated um, predominantly by H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote a great, really dark Gothic core back in the 1920s, 1930s. And and you know, my point is, I agree with him that it is a pseudo religion, but I disagree with him that Lovecraft by himself is really the genesis of the whole notion of ancient aliens. 
it certainly goes far beyond that. But if you really pick it up in modern times, about 140, 150 years ago, it really begins to come into focus uh, in the whole issue of Mars. And uh, Mars was and has been a predominant kind of theme or motif of this whole ancient aliens thing really for uh, well over a century. And so, so that's kind of another kind of seminal point to begin the book is to say, you know, it's important to understand the context of where ancient aliens, you know, came from. This is, this is not just a TV show of the last five years. It, it goes back to, uh, to Rod Serling to, um, you know, in search of ancient aliens in search of a- alien astronauts, um, Eric Van Dyneken, uh, you know, right about the same time that the Hal Lindsey was writing the late great planet Earth, Van Dyneken had written Chariots of the Gods, question mark. And, um, and so all this kind of fits into pop culture and has a big influence upon, uh, our, our society. And, and it happened, it happened, um, that, you know, Mars had always been a great curiosity, the source of mythology, the source of tremendous stories and speculation. Um, it had always been there, and it became more important with the uh, the advent of the telescope, as we could see Mars more up close and personal. And then, really, with uh, the so-called sort of death of God, as as God became less and less believable from sort of the intelligentsia's perspective, the Enlightenment, and so forth. Uh, sort of what happened is that God gets kind of ushered out of the discussion. And so humankind, as it is wont to do, is trying to find a substitute. And so we began to say, well, you know, we, we had to come from somewhere. So, so maybe we came from some other world, from some other place in the universe. And uh, the, the, the concept of panspermia became a, a big issue. And that concept, by the way, is, is thousands of years old. It goes all the way back to the Greeks. But, uh, but nevertheless... That really, you know, is the is the context of this discussion. It's uh, it's Mars, and uh, it's what's been going on, and kind of how Mars and ancient aliens all uh, in kind of con- con- has kind of a confluence and comes together as really a pseudo religion, uh, arguing that uh, that we originated either on Mars, which is kind of what Richard C. Hoagland, Mike Berra, and many others believe, Graham Hancock, or we certainly came from some someplace else. Right, right. Yeah, because we, you know, it's interesting because we mentioned in the last, uh, or the last, the uh, the other episode that we did, the first episode on Mars, uh-huh. I think it was Basil that mentioned how, you know, in pop culture, it's almost like they've made Mars this sort of goofy, you know, some of those movies, the old time right. movies, and you have yeah. some of these kid movies, and it's like, oh, Attack you know, Mars. it's, yeah, so there, yeah, Attack, yeah. <laughs> Attack from Mars. Yeah. So, so there's this kind of you know, weird stigma of like, oh yeah, that silly notion that we came from Mars or that there's life on Mars. Uh, but I think you succinctly put it in uh, your thesis that you state here in the book, and I think it's page 19 or so, you said that your thesis is that for almost 150 years, Mars has been the primary catalyst within popular culture, spawning false religions fabricated on the basis of belief in extraterrestrials. Today, other factors influence the theory, such as the burgeoning awareness of UFOs and countless dramatic sightings. Nevertheless, I predict Mars will soon impact this phenomenon in a big way yet again. Do you think, uh, let's, let's move in a little bit to some of the things going on now. So, you know, obviously what sparked our last episode was the Mars Curiosity rover. You know, they made a big deal about it. Right, right. What, uh, what do you think is going on as far as, you know, NASA and some of the things they're trying to do to discover or do on Mars? Mm-hmm. Well, 
um, you know, one one element of your of your prior question I really didn't hit was Ignatius Donnelly, and and he was a Minnesota uh, congressman who uh, actually began to write. He wrote a book on Atlantis, and one of the the key themes that you see in this whole study of ancient aliens and UFOs is that uh, it kind of goes back and forth between flying saucer technology and outer space versus a concept of, uh, you know, of an ancient advanced civilization on Earth, uh, usually called Atlantis. It was really part of uh, uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine, uh, eventually kind of infiltrated Nazism and so forth. But, but Donnelly's idea of, uh, of Atlantis and ancient civilization, you know, that, that is, uh, was another key element. And, and you'll see this going back and forth uh, in the Ancient Aliens stuff. Is uh, Ancient Aliens, the TV show, it the flash pictures of flying saucers on the TV, but their real focus is to look at archaeology and anthropology, is to look at the sciences of artifacts, and right. it's to look at the sort of the proof of the past. You know, how do you explain these things? How do you explain the pyramids? How old is the Sphinx? So you, you spend more time really focused on ancient history than you do really, you know, how might we uh, propel a flying saucer with Nikola Tesla technology from here to Mars. So a lot of it is more anthropology, archaeology. And so, so then you ask the question, well, why is it, what are we doing on Mars? And, you know, why was NASA involved and so forth? Well, the, the argument that, that Hoagland puts together in Dark Mission and Beyond, The Monument of Mars, Mike Barra, has written a couple of recent books, um, Alien, Aliens on Mars, Aliens on the Moon, um, where they really focus a lot, of course, on photographs. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to demonstrate that there are artifacts, literally facts of art or evidences of, of human or intelligent handicraft, that somebody made something, and if we were to go out there and kick over enough rocks, we're eventually going to find uh, something out there, you know, and of course I jokingly in my, in my presentation, I, I kind of zero in on a patch of ground and keep getting closer and closer until I show a, a can of Coke from 1950 out there. So I, you know, I, I sort of jokingly say that well, maybe Andrew Bisaggio decided to, he was drinking a can of Coke when he was teleported back to Mars and he left it to <laughs> us back in, you know, 1950. And so uh, the, the question is, all right, so if we were to discover, and this is really what the Brookings report talked about in 1960, a uh, big headline in the, in, you know, in the New York Times warning uh, scientists revealed that we may encounter evidences of ancient uh, life on the moon or on the planets of the solar system. And, and so, you know, some would say, and in fact, there's an argument for it based upon Werner von Braun and his issues and so forth, what he was wanting to do, that there's a desire to go out there and find these artifacts on the moon or on Mars that demonstrate that, hey, intelligent life once existed here. It may have been thousands of years ago. It may have been millions of years ago, but it's there. And if it's there, it proves, you know, we're not alone in the universe. And then it raises all kinds of questions, particularly if those artifacts resemble ancient civilizations on Earth. And what is the dominant feature that is discussed? Well, certainly the face on Mars, right. which is compared to the Sphinx of Egypt, but also much more so than that, much more widespread, is the concept of pyramids. And, uh, and so you see um, lots of photographs of pyramid or pyramid-like shapes 
on Mars, and uh, and of course that's really the jumping off point for for Hoagland and for uh, uh, Graham Hancock and others is to talk about this connection between Earth and Mars, a connection that is really highlighted by the pyramids. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I recall, uh, you know, and I think in our episode we talked about Andrew Bishago's groundbreaking PDF document that supposedly showed like. <laughs> yeah. These, yeah. you know, creatures or whatever. And, you know, I can't remember all the creatures that they oh, talked it about. It was great. You had a nice menagerie there of all these different, uh, you know. <laughs> a dolphin sort or of something. Says the, the surface of Mars, yeah. The surface of Mars is just kind of like this uh, sort of collection of statues. Right. It, it almost, it reminded me a little bit of C.S. Lewis's, uh, you know, the, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, where uh, <laughs> yeah. the children are walking through the ice statues. They see all these creatures frozen out there and, and it was kind of almost that comical, yeah. and uh, and you know, I, and of course we'll we'll talk more about Bashago and, and his issues here in a second. But but it, it is a uh, a strange way to prove a thesis to go look at a bunch of different rocks and say, you know, it's a little bit like Charlie Brown and and uh, and Lucy, you know, looking up at the clouds and saying, well, now that one looks like uh, you know the King of Prussia, right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, now you did mention Bashago and. The Bashago is an interesting just concept for me because I'm the kind of person that, you know, I want time travel to be real so badly. And I want, like, if that was real and he was true, like, that would be so awesome. But mm-hmm. it's so just hilariously not. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, what, what do you, like, what, what do you have on this guy? What, what what well, have you found? A lot of things, but you know, you hit upon what I think is really a core issue that, that we've got to keep in mind as we approach the whole issue of ancient aliens, and that's this issue of, of romanticism. Right, exactly. Um, Ray Bradbury, there's a quote of um, Ray Bradbury. He's, you know, he basically says, humanity starts with romanticism and moves towards realism. Right, exactly. And, right. You know, and that's, that is so true, especially for those of us that believe in spiritual realities, we believe in intelligent design, and we believe that you know the providence of God is is evident in our lives personally. And we sort of, you know, we sort of have a, a sense of fairy tale, you know, that that everything works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so we see design, and we want to see design in in all these things. And so we're sort of predisposed to believe. And, you know, whereas the naturalist, let's say, is, is predisposed not to believe. Right. So, you know, uh, Hoagland looks at a, at a colorful rock on the Martian surface and he says, gee, that rock looks like a tennis shoe. And from that, he's ready to rewrite all of human history and to say, <laughs> well, clearly, you know, because of this rock shaped like a tennis shoe on Mars, you know, we should just realize that we all were Martians before we were Earthlings. <laughs> and- <laughs> That's a great way to put it. We but should it, all just realize we, this. We guys. should just should just see. You know, can't you see that tennis shoe? <laughs> you know, and uh, and so um, and I, it's not. By the way, I'm not a. Well, as you'll see as we talk, I'm not a complete skeptic. But um, the reality is that it, you know, if for every one point of of real proof, there are ten points of of hokum, right. hocus, hocus, hokum, and you know, and hoaxes, and so. Um, that's why you have to you have to measure everything very very carefully and kind of noncommittal. So so uh, but yeah, Bashagio, of course, is a great 
study in and of himself, and it leads to all kinds of, uh, of issues. The full selection of the book that I sent you guys, I, I didn't include um, the write-up on him, but we can certainly talk about him. But, yeah, you know, jump rooms, underground military bases, uh, a vast uh, colony of 500,000 humans already living on Mars, Right. Uh, Shago teleporting back and forth in 15 minutes from the Earth to, the, to Mars and uh-huh. meets up with uh, Barry Sotero on the surface of Mars. Right. And, you know, this this stuff goes beyond mythology. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I know, it's so funny. It, it is it is a remarkable story. I, and you can't help but love the guy just because he's willing to stand out there in public and, and say things oh my and gosh. absolutely believes them and we'll we'll talk more about maybe why he believes them in a minute but right but it is um it definitely catches our interest and and that's kind of come back to the point well why would you say woodward that mars is going to have another big impact upon society pop culture or whatever well it's because you know these kinds of stories they may get more intense there may be more and more factors that these guys pull out that, you know, what What if they could really prove that Bashago really was there listening to Lincoln, uh, you know, given right. Pittsburgh yeah. Express, and he really was able to prove that he was there. Wouldn't that lend credibility to everything else, he says? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then the, probably taking a really big far step back and putting this in perspective, you know, we're going to encounter, if we if this is the last days, we are going to encounter a belief system that is so amazingly, you know, it's provocative, but it's it's so incredible. And guess what? There's all this proof that says that says that it's true, such, such that as Jesus said, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Right. And so you, you sort of say, you know, whatever the the world one world religion is. It's got to be amazing, and it's got to be provable to some extent, because it's not going to just be the uh, a few, you know, bunch a few crazies out here that go around talking about ancient, you know, uh, astronauts with with weird hairdos, right? right. You know, the, <laughs> the you pronounce his name, um, um, but that it's a mainstream idea, and for it to be a mainstream idea, there's got to be there's got to be a lot of proof. And so, you know, so part of the, the, you know, the reason for writing the book is get ready, get ready. Right. It's coming. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of really wacky things that are going to be proven true. And guess what? It's going to shake up the religious systems, the, you know, and the belief systems of, uh, of everyone in the world. Right. And it's right. interesting how it seems like the Catholic Church, with some of the, the work that Tom Horn and Chris Putnam has, has done, it's almost like they're getting ready for that. You know, they're, yeah. they're sort of preparing the, uh, religious masses to accept this sort of thing. Yes. Um, but you have a, you have, um, one of the, I guess, sub chapters about the, uh, jump rooms, time travel and military bases. Uh, this well, one jumped out at me, comic books and the CIA. What, what's that about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is where the rabbit hole begins to, uh, open up and it begins to swallow you. Um, the story I, I ta- tell in the uh, chapter is I start off talking about Argo. You know, the movie that, that was Best Picture in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, written, acted, Ben Affleck, and so forth. Um, and uh, I have to thank Nick Redfern, who does a lot of great research. And so this is certainly his scoop, not something that I stumbled across by myself. I just stumbled across it in his book. And then I researched it and it turned out to be, lo and behold, it was true. Um, there was a, a real movie, that uh, a movie script, a book that had been written called The Lords of Light. 
that was the uh, was the real name. It wasn't Argo or the Argonauts, but it was Lord of Light, and it was written, you know, by a, a guy back in the you know 1970s, and it was a concept of uh, uh, of uh, uh, of there being uh, sort of aliens in space, and the guy that wrote it was kind of taking more of a of a Buddhist uh, kind of motif. And kind of mixing that in with outer space, and that was kind of the Lord of Light. And of course, you say that, and we all know what we who, who we think of, and we think of the Lord of Light. Probably not Jesus Christ, but probably Lucifer. And um, and so there's that thing. But then there, what was really intriguing, and the connection was this guy named Jack Kirby. Um, he was a friend of Stan Lee, and they were they had written comics, had done comics together. And this guy named Jack Kirby had done. Um, you know, a number of comic books, and, and, and he actually did a comic book in 1958, and I actually have a picture of it in, in, the, in the book when I, when I showed the rest of the book with you guys, um, from 1958, and the, and the title of the, of the uh, comic book was The Face on Mars, and this, uh, he has uh, these people going uh, to Mars, and, uh, and they, they walk upon and stumble upon this giant face. Hmm. that lies across the ground looking up into space. And they go in through the eyes of this face, and they walk down into this vast underground cavern that, lo and behold, it's chock full of all kinds of advanced technology, uh, machines. It has pictures. It, they, as they study it, it tells the story of, a, of an ancient alien race that happened to be humanoid. And, you know, because kind of like in Star Trek, every creature in outer space is humanoid and has two eyes and then two ears. <laughs> right. And they all speak English. Yeah, we all evolved the same way. And so, but, you know, but there's all these uh, pictures and, and evidences that this, that this uh, group uh, was from some other planet, and, and they study it more and more, and they learn that, yeah, they had to escape because they were under attack, and they came to Mars, and they built... Um, you know, this underground base and they, you know, they had the face on Mars as its idea, a motif on top and all that. So you go, now wait a second. This is 1958. Well, and then what was the Jack Kirby connection was that the CIA went to Jack Kirby and they had him when they were doing the, the mission to Tehran, they had Jack Kirby do the artwork for Lord of Light, which was, of course, Argo. The, the fictional thing was Argo. And, uh, but it turns out that there really was a connection between the CIA and this comic book in the 1950s. Hmm. And turns out that's not the only example from the 1950s that goes into this motif of Mars, ancient, uh, ancient civilizations, and even pyramids. Um, there's, uh, a, a guy named, uh, Ender, uh, in, a, 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 a binder, binder, B-I-N-D-E-R, but his uh, real name was Otto Binder. He used a pseudonym, and I can't pronounce his first name, but, but, uh, but he did a, um, a book, uh, around 1970, where it called, I think it was The Pyramids from Space or The Pyramids on Mars. And, uh, and so you've got the same sort of mythos appearing again, uh, where you have these pyramids being found on Mars. And your listeners may recall it really wasn't until about 1976 with Viking 1 that the photograph first came back uh, that showed what looked to be a face on Mars. And, and so, you know, it wasn't until about 1976 that this idea was sort of 
you know, at least um, it was in, it was kind of grafted into or ingrained in a photograph graphically. Right. So, but you had all these other things happening almost 20 years before the CIA was involved in it, and it, it had the same sort of mythos. And, and that just opens the, the door to a whole bunch of other stories and uh, a whole bunch of other um, you know, testimonies. The Chagas is one. William Cooper's is another. You know, this whole theory that, that we were on Mars, you know, in the 1960s, and we right. colony on Mars there and so forth. So, so it, you know, it turns out that the rabbit hole gets, gets very wide and very deep. And we've just again just barely touched on a, a number of things by, by covering those issues. I know there's so much to touch on. We're just gonna just keep throwing it around here. Now, here's something that I would love to hear about. Earlier in 2013, we had an interview with Stan Deo, and he told us about a story where he was, um, you know, kind of in a warehouse of the scientist who was working on something, and he kind of stumbled upon like a satanic altar. And you have a section of the book here called A Rocket Scientist and an Occult Priest. Yeah, 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 Jack Parsons. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, actually, I, um, in, in the book, I, I start off touching, uh, you know, about Jack Parsons, and there's a whole lot to, to his story, but um, he was the founder of uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, the locals refer to it as the Jack Parsons Laboratory. Oh. Uh, but JPL, of course, is a is a major portion of, of the NASA uh, institution. It's located in Pasadena. Um, it turns out I actually have a, a family connection to the whole curiosity story. I have a, uh, a niece married a, a guy who works at JPL out in Pasadena. Uh, this is my, uh, my brother's son-in-law, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is a project manager, and he was the guy that was involved in working on the um, – um, the, you know how you guys, I think, talked a bit about this in your program a year ago, um, where as the, as Curiosity, as the Mars Roving Laboratory was getting ready to land, it sort of opened up and it, it, it like, kind of like a crane, it, right. uh, it dropped down the payload and then it sort of lowered the payload kind of down, kind of like a forklift almost. And well, it turns out, um, you know, sort of my nephew in law, if you will, was actually the project manager for, you know, one of the key mechanisms. Wow, Sky Crane. That's so, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I could talk more about that. But anyway, uh, interesting, just kind of synchronicity there. So, right. All right. So, um, all right. So going back to Jack Parsons. So Parsons, in addition to being a rocket scientist, and he was kind of the key guy that figured out about solid rocket fuel. He was uh, enamored with a German rocket scientist named Willie Lay, who was a friend and cohort with Werner von Braun, even when uh, Lay and von Braun were still in Germany uh, designing rockets to fire in London. Um, you know, uh, there were a couple of Americans, Jack Parson, before him, Robert Goddard, that had done a lot of great work in, in rocket science. Parson was the guy that kind of came up with solid rocket fuel. And by the way, they named it Jet Propulsion Laboratory instead of like rocket propulsion laboratory, because rockets were all associated with Flash Gordon and they had no credibility. Nobody right. rockets could really be fired. And so that's yeah. why they called it the jet propulsion laboratory. Um, well, anyway, so of course, another thing you see, which is always interesting is the, is the intersection between scientists and the paranormal. So scientists, they kind of all, many scientists sort of had this sense that, um, you know, that there really is this sort of connection between the paranormal and advanced technology. It's, 
It's like uh, was Arthur C. Clarke that said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. So, and you got you sort of see that paradigm throughout. Um, you know, anybody that's really into this advanced, super advanced technology is that they sort of all believe there really is some kind of a mechanism that drives it, and yet it you know until you really understand it, it it's just magic. Well, so anyway, Parsons was into uh, Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO, which was founded originally by a guy named Aleister Crowley. And the whole Crowley story is another one to give us a lot of perspective, because Crowley um, believed in, um, he, he actually orchestrated a, and, and created a religion called uh, Thelema, or Thelema, depending upon how you pronounce it. Right. Um, and since I don't attend their meetings, I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. <laughs> so, uh, but it, it was very much a, uh, a religion based upon um, satanic, uh, deep, Enochian magic, John Dee, uh, very, very uh, you know, ritualistic, sexual magic, and so forth. Well, anyway, Parsons became the um, became sort of the high priest while he was out in Pasadena. And uh, and so he, in effect, was connected with Aleister Crowley. Uh-huh. Crowley has a whole series of his own interesting stories. He was connected with Ian Fleming during the war. Uh, you know, we could, go down, we could go down a complete trail there with just talking about the connections of Aleister Crowley and all that Crowley did. But, um, but nevertheless, Parsons, even back to him, Parsons was was very involved in helping to sort of generate the whole issue of science fiction. Uh, he used to have a meeting at his house. They jokingly called it the Parsonage. Uh, for those of us that you know know about preachers and, and their homes, uh, lots of times churches furnish a home for their pastor, and they call it the Parsonage. Well, anyway, so you had guys like Robert Heinlein, uh, Ray Bradbury, and then you had this guy named L. Ron Hubbard. These guys were all part of this science fiction club. They were all had all just begun to start writing science fiction. And this was in sort of the 1940s. And, um, and, and then early in the 1940s and then later, uh, you see um, Jack Parsons actually going out in the Mojave Desert. And uh, I forget who it was with him, but it was one of his other cohorts. The two of them performed this uh, very deep Enochian uh, magical ritual called Babylon working, in which they were mm-hmm. trying to conjure up a moon child or the Babylon, the horror of Babylon. And, um, and so, you know, I could go into more detail on the story, but, but long story short, uh, supposedly this uh, conjuring works. Um, Parsons goes back and he meets this redheaded woman that just shows up in his doorstep. Uh, she becomes, I think her name was Marjorie Cameron. She becomes sort of his, uh, um, you know, Babylon, horror Babylon. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard becomes more significant uh, in the story. He actually runs off with Jack Parsons' wife to Florida. Uh, Hubbard boasts that he's going to create a, a religion based upon extraterrestrials, and he does. It's called Scientology. Uh, Hubbard probably was a Navy spy sent originally into Jet Propulsion Laboratory to spy on Parsons and huh. uh, one of his uh, his German cohort, uh, Theodore von Karman, just worried, uh, the Navy was worried that, well, maybe these secrets are going to get back to the Germans, and goodness knows we've got Germans firing enough rockets at us already. And, you know, and so there's, the stuff just gets deeper and deeper and Pretty soon, you become convinced that there really is something going on here. These people really are doing some real conjuring and 
some real things are happening. And, and, uh, of course, uh, you know, I could jump over and talk about, uh, uh, Nick Redford, his concept of the Collins elite and, uh, their whole story, which gets back to Jack Parsons, Babylon working, the ritual and, uh, and an alternative explanation for what happened at Roswell in 1947. So, mm-hmm. uh, the nice thing about the book is it does deal with us in a more organized way than, than sort of my stream of consciousness here. <laughs> it's all good. No, same with us, too. We're kind of jumping around here, but that's okay. It just makes people want to go get the book even more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it'll be out in just a couple more days. I don't know when, when this show will be aired, but maybe it'll be available out on Amazon when it is. Cool. Okay. Yeah, Sounds it should good. be. Um, yeah, you know, Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, I mean, I, I actually cite – uh, one of their rituals, if you will, or alleged rituals, it's not really clear, but in my um, my upcoming film, uh, Age of Deceit 2, Alchemy and the Rise of the Beast Image, I, I talk about this thing called the mannequin that they worked on, and the, actually the Brookings Institute released uh, a short explanation of this thing called the Jumbo uh, back in February of 2013, where basically... Uh, the explanation they gave was that uh, General Leslie Groves, who was actually the head of the Manhattan Project, um, mm. they were worried about you know what would happen when they did their first you know nuclear explosion test right out in New Mexico. Yes. Yeah. So they created this thing called the Jumbo. They spent 142 million dollars on it, and it was this 214 ton, 25 feet long, 12 foot wide, huge you know 14 inch thick wall thing. And you know some some of these conspiracy and occult uh, investigators actually said that what they were trying to do was actually create a golem, you know, right. like a, like an oh, inanimate yeah. human right. being or right. you know right. a, a soulless body, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of speculation and weird stuff going on there. But of course, you know, the official explanation is, oh, we didn't want a nuclear leak. Uh, but you know, that's, that's, that's what they're, that's what they're telling us. Yeah. yeah. So, but, um, I think Basil had a question about, uh, Nikola Tesla. Ah, yeah. Oh yeah. My my boy Tesla, everybody who listens to the show knows I'm a Tesla enthusiast. Um, and so, uh, what's the connection there? What do you got for me? Well, uh, okay. Well, Tesla, there's a, I do a chapter, um, where I talk about, uh, Nikola Tesla and, uh, uh, Marconi. Uh-huh. Uh, Giovanni, I think it is. Uh, no, Guglielmo. Guglielmo. Yeah. I can't say that very well. It's not one of those <laughs> diphthongs that the English, <laughs> Englishers do well. But they both claim Marconi and Tesla. Well, both these guys around 1895, 1897, 1900, they, they both were working on radios. And, and they both might claim, usually Marconi is given the credit for being the first inventor of the radio. Right. Um, and Tesla, uh, you know, actually was very involved in doing that as well. And of course, Tesla was working on, um, you know, those, those listeners that might've seen the movie, the prestige, right. you, see, you know, this uh, guy out there in Colorado Springs, testing lights and turning lights on, uh, lights on wirelessly, you know, and, and of course Tesla was doing all kinds of things that most of which is still classified today because we don't want the information that he, uh, you know, the stuff that he developed and thought of, to get out to our enemies, but uh, which of course it may already have. the system. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I have a chapter called radio contact with Mars. And so both Marconi and Tesla were, were public. Um, Tesla wrote an article and I think it was in Collier's weekly, um, in, uh, 1901, in which he talks about, uh, his first contact with intelligence, uh, from Mars via his wireless radio. Now, now mind you, 
the radio had really just been invented. It was just still, you know, people were still convinced that there was no way that we could communicate signals, you know, wirelessly. The telegraph obviously was communicating signals via wire and the telephone was, was beginning to, uh, you know, jingle a little bit. And so we were, we had wired connections, but, but wireless connections, that was just, that was just crazy. Uh, in fact, when, when Marconi sent his patent application into the head of patents uh, in Italy, the guy scribbled on the top of his patent application straight to the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was just not possible to do wireless communication. So anyway, so they, these guys uh, both are inventing wireless communication. And, and all of a sudden, you know, Mark, uh, Tesla says he's, he's working alone in his laboratory. It's dark. It's in the middle of the night. And he starts getting this radio signal. And he starts explaining how, you know, he could pretty well uh, map different electronic signatures from different, you know, things that were going on in the world, thunderstorms, whatever. But there was a sort of background signal that he was picking up, and it had a pattern to it. And so uh, he, he basically explains that he decided it was from, it had to be from intelligence, it had to be off-world. And, uh, and so he became convinced it was, it was from Mars. And supposedly Marconi had similar experience. And so you had these two guys um, that were here in 1901. The, you know, the, what's happened is in pop culture at the time, the telescope um, has become very powerful. Percival Lowell has been out campaigning now for about five years uh, on, um, on, you know, given his views of what he's seen as he's looking at Mars. Um, guys named Pietro Secchi in, in like 1870 and then, um, let's see, it's Giovanni Schiaparelli that actually invented the term canal or canali, not cannoli, but canali. <laughs> and, uh, and so you, and you got Lowell, he gets very enthusiastic. He hears that Sechi's losing his eyesight. So he starts really studying Mars and, and he has kind of a paranormal interest anyway. He had just gotten back from Japan in 1894. He had done a study on the occult in Japan. So he was, he was kind of into this really weird and, you know, stuff that was on the fringe. And, uh, well, so anyway, so he's, he's got people in the culture pretty well excited, believing that there's evidence, you know, that they see these markings on the surface of Mars and, and they appear to be straight lines and some of them are double lines and it looks like that, you know, there's polar ice caps. They can make that out and there seems to be seasonal changes on Mars. And so you've got everybody on Earth now convinced that there really is intelligent life on Mars. And so, Marconi and, and Tesla come along and they start saying they're communicating wirelessly with intelligence on Mars. And, you know, you, you had to be really one of the top skeptics to just dismiss all this. Right. It just seemed, it just seemed to be too obvious. You know, well, of course, of course there's intelligence and they're talking to us now. And, and, uh, and so then that's, you know, then, then along comes pulp fiction and, and, uh, science fiction gets invented within 20 years and, Bingo! For the next forty, fifty years, you've got this massive infusion of the concept of of uh, a- ancient aliens, uh, life on other planets, uh, and so forth and so on. So, so that's kind of where Tesla fits into uh, into this. Notwithstanding, of course, his his whole issue about uh, I didn't really talk about his concept of pulse radio waves versus right. sort of analog sound waves, and then his theories of propulsion that could have gotten us to and from Mars, you know. So, so Tesla fits in in a lot of different ways. But the wireless, publicly talking about wireless communication with Martian intelligence, that really, that really stimulated a lot of interest in the pop, in, in pop culture. Good old Tesla. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting how the, 
you know, the, the telescope, it seems like uh, we just did a, an episode on the moon and, you know, all sorts of crazy theories were happening yeah. after looking at the moon with right. <laughs> some pretty similar theories. Actually. <laughs> yeah, the, the, oh yeah. Yeah. The no, moon if, you, if you're willing to go down these rabbit holes, you know, it, it becomes, um, an art form almost to, to see how wild crazy <laughs> I like that. Be, I, I like that. And I think that's what, uh, especially with the moon episode and also with the Mars episode, I think yeah. me and me and Gans have really found our, our true art form in going into, <laughs> into those sorts you're not of alone. things. Well, you, know, you, you do mention, I think early on in the book, uh, well, the, some of the pages you sent us, uh, yeah. you do mention that there is this sort of prerogative of, the human imagination and, and, you know, it was sort of a God given gift, so to speak, you know, that we should, uh, embrace to some aspect, you know, we shouldn't ignore it completely. Um, no, not at all. Not yeah. at all. It, it's kind of, it partially gets back to the romanticism question. Right. And right. In another subject that I talk about, which is, is kind of cutting edge science, but it is right on the fringe as well. And that's the issue of how much does, you know, our mind, or collectively, do our mind together help to create reality versus right. just perceive it? Yeah. And yes. and so, you know, that gets that's, that kind of gets into the same realm as time travel and all that. It really begins to be a mind bender. But right. um, science is beginning to. What I do is I talk about it in the context of UFO manifestations. And, and I, I posed the question about Jack Parsons and, and his Parsonage group, uh, all these science fiction writers all coming together, you know, the rituals that uh, Parsons did, but just all of the books that began to be written in the 40s, you know, and all of a sudden, 1947, you've got these sightings, Kenneth Arnold, uh, you know, the, and then the Roswell crash, mm-hmm. uh, the Washington flap in 1952. That, that gives, um, basically motivates the, uh, the first 3D outer space terror movie, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, right after that in 1953. And so, you know, the question is, to what extent does our expectation, does our belief in the phenomenon help to create the phenomenon? Right. And, uh, and so, you know, that itself is, uh, is an intriguing issue. I go into quite a few stories. I talk about one of my favorite characters, uh, Andrija Puharic, who did a lot of research in the 1940s and 1950s um, on behalf of military intelligence, the CIA, uh, a lot of mind control stuff. He was actually the guy that discovered Yuri Geller in a Tel Aviv nightclub in 1970. He brought, brought him back over to uh, Stanford Research Institute, where um, Hal Putoff and oh, what's the other guy's name? Um, two of the physicists that were they were kind of the lackeys for the CIA at Stanford, and they were doing all this research. But anyway, Puharic was was up to his earlobes in that, and and the whole study of Puharic and uh, the concept of the Egyptian Aeneid, the nine gods. Um, man, this takes us down into some other really intriguing things that uh, includes Gene Roddenberry from Star Trek, John Denver. The whole concept of the nine. In fact, Peter Lavenda, one of his uh, his first books talking about America and the occult, uh, his subtitle is the is the nine, and he's referencing the Andrija Puharic and his uh, his study of the nine gods of Egypt. Supposedly, these these nine gods are the gods that that also were communicating with uh, Maria Orsic and the and the uh, the Vril, 
uh, that became the Thule Society in Germany. And so there's this, you know, this stuff gets really, really intriguing and deep and, and highly interconnected. Right. So, uh, well, I'd like to just make a statement, which is you touch on this many times, and I think it's very, very good because it fits in exactly with the beliefs of our program here. Mm-hmm. And that is, and for those of you who are listeners have heard us say this a lot, that it's good to have a healthy skepticism yeah. as well as uh, a good worth ethic in your research but and also you know an open mind and a and a willingness to find the truth and i uh, i like that especially with this stuff and i think if you listen to our other episodes you can kind of catch it without us actually explicitly saying it and that is you know it's it's fun to look into this stuff and kind of let your imagination run wild and you know get really into some of the crazy stuff but you know having a level head on your shoulders and asking questions and especially comparing it biblically is a good recreational habit. <laughs> well, it, it is. And, and uh, I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment there. I, I think that, you know, why is it that, that somebody like me spends all this time uh, studying the, the strange, uh, as some people say, the highly strange, the wacky? Um, well, because people believe in it. And yeah. people make this stuff their religion. They make it their worldview, their cosmology. And, uh, and so, and of course the thesis is that, that all this stuff connects to, um, the revelation, the revealing of the Antichrist. It, the great it gets wrapped into the great deception of the last days. And, you know, as you get into it and you, you begin to see the historical context and how many people through deception of, what was going on, you know, what my Mark Marconi said in 1901, what Percival Lowell was saying, you had all these people channeling, uh, you know, beings from Mars and, and basically telling you all that, you know, all these green, beautiful green plush valleys on Mars, and they were channeling, you know, uh, supposedly these beings from Mars. And, right. of course, saying things that were just blatantly lies. Right. Um, and I have a lot of examples of that. But, but it becomes a belief system, and that's really the, the issue, the warning is that, you know, the, the yellow or the red light should be flashing. Every time uh, an episode of Ancient Aliens comes on, and there's about a million and a half to two million viewers now uh, of that program, that see uh-huh. that program, there's a lot of minds that are being made up that say, hey, yep. you know, E.T. is God, and yep. uh, the God of the Bible is just ridiculous. Uh, clearly, there's a scientific reason, and, you know, even though we would say it's pseudoscience, um, Nevertheless, there's a lot of people that are out there now buying into this, and according to the Scripture, if we're right about this being the last days and that this is the kind of the, the genesis of the final great deception, then, you know, it's, it's going to become so compelling that even Christians are going to be deceived. Absolutely, and, we'll, and the great deception is a huge part of the Mars talk, and we will definitely get into that a little bit more, but I can just, I can just feel it, Gons. I can just feel that you've got something over there. Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, you have a chapter here called Mars and the Freemasons, and we can't, yeah. we can't have a, a, you know, a conversation about strange conspiracies and you know, occult subjects right. without bringing in the Freemasons. But here, <laughs> yeah, here's what caught my attention, and you know, I, I love the titles of your subchapters. You have I know, a, I, I, yeah. <laughs> the okay. first one uh, is the wonderful worlds of Disney. And Boom. so, <laughs> yeah. So you what's, what's that. going you on there? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Uh, yeah, I, I talk about, I start off uh, exactly right, the wonderful worlds of Disney. That is not a typo. That was intentional. Um, uh, obviously talking about both Earth and Mars. And uh, I explore the connections. I do this kind of as a lead-up to the David Flynn discussion, which I go into uh, extensively. But it, it kind of fits as the good preamble to the whole David Flynn discussion of, of Cydonia and the well, Chronicles of Cydonia. Right. And that is that Walt Disney became good friends with the runner Von Braun. And uh, Von Braun had uh, you know, always said that he really didn't want to fire rockets in London. He really wanted to fire rockets to the moon and to Mars. And um, so anyway, back in the 1950s, Disney and Von Braun collaborated on a series of films um, you know, pointing to the moon and to, and to Mars, exploring these different worlds. And, uh, uh, and so uh, Disney was very intrigued about Mars. And I remember as a, as a child, our fifth or sixth grade, seeing one of the Disney films and uh, uh, talking about Von, Von Braun's theories about different ways that we could get to Mars and how long it would take. And I was just fascinated by that stuff. And I love Disney. I still do love Disney, although I know Disney has... You know, there's a downside to Disney. I, I'm still a Disney fan. I still right. like the house, right? Right. And, uh, um, and so, uh, yeah, so the, the story gets into uh, how Disney and, and Von Braun were, were friends. Uh, Von Braun, the extensive work that he had done on the project to go to Mars, this vast armada of spaceships, uh, how they would rendezvous, how they would travel to Mars. Um, and the, the question that I've, I've talked about before is, what was it that was driving Von Braun? What was driving his interest in Mars? And the same is true with Willie Lay and, and uh, a number of the other, and there were many German rocket scientists. You guys probably know that uh, you know, Pro- Project Paperclip brought virtually the entire German rocket contingent, the ones that weren't killed when Pinamundi was bombed by the Allies. They moved everybody to further inland um, into the dark black forest, Right. They finished doing their rocket work, but uh, and the Czechoslovakia, which is another story. So, um, but anyway, the uh, um, they they wanted to go to the moon and to Mars for a very specific reason, and it kind of comes out in Hitler's book Table Talk, where he's being interviewed, and and the book may not be a true book, although there are reasons to believe that it probably is true. That Hitler was interviewed, and that these you know uh, interviews were factual. But he talks specifically about the, the belief that it would come a time when we would stumble across artifacts on the moon or Mars, and we would prove once and for all that the Jewish religion, uh, of which Christ was just another Jew, um, that uh, that it was false. It was a fabrication. <laughs> Be- because and, uh, of artifacts on because Mars. Because of artifacts. <laughs> because of tennis shoes, rocks in the shape of tennis shoes on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> that um, that that religion would be proven to be untrue, and uh, we would discover, you know, kind of the whole plurality of worlds notion that uh, that the Vatican, you know, as we talked about briefly earlier, you know, the work Chris Putnam's done and Tom Horn, you know, the, the Vatican is preparing right. uh, the world for disclosure, and uh, and so that's kind of where von Braun was coming from, is that it's you know it's it theorized that he really was caught up in the same hope that that we could eventually discovered our true meaning. And even a scientist, uh, John Brandenburg, he's done a lot of work on the possible catastrophe, a nuclear catastrophe that may have occurred uh, on Mars, which ties into David Flynn and Rahab and the destruction of the, of the adjacent planet and so forth, um, that uh, even Brandenburg 
you know, says essentially that when we finally understand the secret of Mars, we will understand the secret of ourselves. Right. You know, in a, in a phrase, that's kind of the connection. There is this romantic belief that to really understand our origin and our destiny, that Mars is the key to unlock that. Right. And so I see here you have um, electrifying communiques. Yes, that was the electrifying communiques. That was the, the Marconi and, and uh, right, Tesla right. story. But, it, you know, the, the, the story goes well beyond that. You get into, uh, if you want to go down that path, um, you get into this whole issue of gravitic, electrogravitic pulse waves. There and, it is. Yeah, there it is. And we're back to Tesla and talking about <laughs> how um, the communication, you know, Marconi was working on sort of this analog uh, sound wave concept, which is really the basis of all of our sound waves, TV, you know, TV uh, radio, et cetera. But um, Marconi, or rather, uh, Tesla was working on this concept of a pulse wave. Mm-hmm. And um, supposedly the Germans may have implemented this somewhat in their in their submarines or U-boats, but the idea of a pulse wave is is quite different than a sound wave. Um, and uh, I probably should spare because it can take a long explanation to go into right, the, right, the, right. We don't need to get into the yeah, we don't need to stuff. go into the weeds. But nevertheless, the idea was that he was developing a different type of of, uh, of wave that right. could uh, resonate and could communicate, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, it was sort of this idea that was uh, involved in the communications um, with uh, with Martians. But the, the mythos around Marconi and Tesla goes into uh, the view that they eventually went to South America, uh, actually before the end of World War II, because South America, specifically uh, Argentina, Bolivia, uh, had been a, a home for many, many Germans that had already immigrated there. Mm-hmm. So they were very German friendly. Well, supposedly as the story goes, it's almost images of, of James Bond and you only live twice. There's this, this high mountainous uh, volcano at 16,000 feet elevation, um, where, um, supposedly Marconi and Tesla set up shop, uh, and they continued to, uh, develop their, uh, their new flying machines and they create, Flying saucers uh, that take them to the next level, and uh, and supposedly this this goes on in South America for a considerable period of time, and it gets into all kinds of stuff. I talk a lot about Joseph P. Farrell and his theories about the cosmic war, but nevertheless, the Marconi Tesla story sort of culminates in this theory that Tesla wasn't really killed in his hotel room by two American or German spies, right? But that he actually escaped Marconi. Uh, picked him up. I don't know if he picked him up in a flying saucer or what, but got him down to South America and, <laughs> right. uh, and that they continued to invent wild and crazy things in their, uh, in their, you know, the, the mountain high, three mile high, uh, you know, mountain, uh, in, in South America. Well, that would sure be a happier ending to the story than I, you know, I'm familiar with. Absolutely. You know, so, that's was quite an interesting character. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. So now Gons, I know that Gons has uh, looked into and has researched the uh, subject of drugs and specifically T- DMT mm-hmm. in regards to uh, things similar to this matter. Gons, why don't you? Yeah, I mean, you, you basically, it's one of the later chapters. And then, you know, after we kind of touch on DMT and sort of the, you know, the spiritual aspect of it, we'll start getting into the great deception. I have 
you know, I, I want to hear your take on um, the biblical matters of where Mars might fit into the Bible. Uh, of course, you know, the David Flynn stuff that that we have right. to touch on. But uh, before we yeah. do, I, I do want to ask you the the uh, aliens in inner space, pyramid rituals, DMT, and DNA. What's that all about? Well, the, yeah, it gets into really tackling the whole issue of, of the ancient alien religion. And um, so it's one of the last chapters. There's a chapter right before that where I really get into um, Aleister Crowley and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and a guy, um, oh, what's Grant's first name? Um, I'm going to go look here. The Necronomicon, Necronomicon. I have to pronounce it correctly, Necronomicon, which was a sort of grimoire, a uh, magical cookbook, if you will, mm-hmm. um, very religious ideas. Uh, Kenneth Grant, yeah, he was a follower, follow-on to uh, Aleister Crowley. Um, but specifically, the idea of inner space, it, it gets into um, Philip Coppins, who's the late Philip Coppins. He was one of the featured speakers on Ancient Aliens. We right. saw him a lot. He had kind of the funny, it was a Belgian uh, accent, long hair. Long hair, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he passed away just about a year and a month ago. It turns out he had a very, very uh, unusual, uh, I think it was a, either kind of a brain or a liver uh, cancer that he, uh, that he had, and unfortunately passed away. Uh, he was a, creative, a, a very creative thinker. Uh, he had done research originally for Picnet and Prince on the Stargate Conspiracy, which was written in 1999, which was... I think one of the more important books to really challenge some of the the Mars mania of uh, Graham Hancock and Richard C. Hoagland. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Coppins had been one of their researchers. And uh, so I touch on a lot of his theories, and the point I make to begin the chapter is that Coppins was was kind of a contrarian to the, the you know, George, what is it, Zulus? How do you pronounce George's name? That's the, the, the founder. Sucolos. Thank you, Sucolos. Um, kind of a contrarian to where Eric Van Dyneken and Zuccolos and the other guys are, David Hetcher Childress, there's, you know, sort of about a half dozen guys that are frequently on ancient aliens. Coppins had a different view. He, he talks about the, the fact that humankind has been contacting these aliens internally, uh, you know, sort of through inner space, um, and to some extent, his theory is a bit more attractive because it tends to square with a number of other things we know about the occult and the paranormal. Uh, he talks a lot about the pyramid religion, the true meaning of the pyramids. Um, his view was that the pyramids are clearly not monuments erected to, uh, you know, as a result of the death of a pharaoh, but they were, in effect, temples. They were temples in which the pharaoh would, when it would enter into the pyramid, and the pyramid was especially constructed to enable the pharaoh to contact the, the nine gods, Atum, Ra, Horus, uh, these, the nine, the Aeneid, and to communicate with them, and that it was in his ability to communicate with the nine that he was therefore qualified to lead the Egyptian empire, that uh, that his contact made him divine, and so that he sort of walked and talked with God. And you can kind of see a little bit of a reference to the concept of Enoch and uh, the Book of Enoch and all that. But, right. uh, but that's uh, Coppin's argument that that is the true meaning of the Egyptian religion, is that there's this 
pyramid, and it was only the Pharaoh that was able to connect and contact the gods. And as long as he was in connection with the gods, then things were going to be cool in the land of Egypt. And, uh, and so that's, that's his argument for why the pyramids existed. Now, what's interesting, though, which I point out, which I hadn't seen anybody else that pointed this out, is that he sort of has an internal or self-contradiction, because after he talks about that, he then starts talking about drugs, uh, and he talks about DNA. He talks about DMT, which is dimethyltryptamine, if I remember right. Um, and DMT is a substance that the human body produces naturally, but it, it's taken up by the human body very quickly so that once we produce it, uh, there's a counter uh, inhibitor in our body that takes it up so that it doesn't have a very long-lasting effect. Well, it, it turns out that um, the, the ritual concoction uh, that they brew in the Amazon, Ayahushka or Ayashka, or there's different ways to pronounce it, but um, it's a very foul-smelling, tasting brew that has both DMT in it, DMT in it, and it has a, another drug that uh, basically inhibits the take-up mechanism of the human body, such that mm-hmm. the effects of DMT can be very long-lasting. They can last for hours. And so what it does is it's a psychotropic drug. It's not necessarily a psychedelic drug, although some would argue that it is, but it's a psychotropic drug, and it, it enables an individual to have these extended visions and trances. Right. And so you get into a whole new sort of world. He talks about various different people that he had met, and Terrence McKenna, probably the, the most notable. Right. He also is the late Terrence McKenna. Um, and um, talks about how through DMT, through these drugs, that one can encounter these beings. And a funny thing uh, in these trances is that these beings are humanoid, but they have this hawk-like head. Some of them do. Some Mm -hmm. of them look a lot like the the icon or the hieroglyph for Horus, which is the the bird-head man. Oh, Horus. All right, oh, Horus. Of course, (laughs) of course, of course. Uh, Not Mr. Ed, but anyway. And then there was... The other uh, common symbol or icon would be the snake, the dragon or the snake. And you see that, you see the twin snakes. And, of course, the supposition he jumps to is that these snakes are, in fact, the DNA molecule. And that the inner gods, and he goes in to talk about some of the trances that, and some of the things that people have channeled in these trances, that ties into panspermia, that some great ancient alien being, uh, you know, decided to transport themselves and transpose themselves into DNA molecules and that they would hide themselves into the millions of life forms on planet Earth by hiding themselves in the DNA. Now, you think, well, that's crazy. Well, no, that's kind of, it may be crazy, but it's, it's not, Philip Coppins is not the only guy to believe this. Graham Hancock, in his 2007 book, Supernatural, talks a lot about this. His subtitle is is more or less Encounters with the the Ancient Teachers of Humankind. And so he sort of has the same thing where he goes off and he takes a lot of drugs and he learns all these things. A guy named Daniel Pinchback um, wrote a couple of books, Breaking Open the Head, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. So you get sort of all these different authors that have 
but you know, are very focused on the overlap between the paranormal and the connection with the outer space, uh, space alien. Right, absolutely. So, Coppins, so that's where Coppins is going. And I, of course, I point out that you know, each of these ideas in their own way are, you know, it's sort of like there's multiple paths to God. There's the pyramid, there's the DMT thing, and then there's sort of this DNA thing. And it's, it, it's almost as if he argues there's a consistency there when really there's sort of an inherent inconsistency. Right. And, you know, the only consistency is that they all want to say the same thing, which is that God is E.T. It's just that E.T. discloses himself not in, you know, in, let's say, UFOs, but he discloses himself in internal vision and trances. Right, right. right. So, so Coppins argues, that's where he kind of runs counter to the other ancient alien guys, in that he says, you know, you're, you're never going to prove UFOs. You know, we got 50 years, and we got a zillion photographs, and it doesn't matter, it's never going to be proven. So what he says is, so, but the way you can really prove it is you can take these drugs, and you can see these talking snakes, and, <laughs> and, and once you talk to them, you're going to get the skinny, and then you're going to really know about God. And that's, and that's all the proof I need. Is, is his argument. So, um, you know, and so, it, it, you know, when you play it as I just did with that much sarcasm, um, you know, it's actually his, like I said, in some ways, his arguments are kind of more pleasing to the, uh, the, the guy that's sort of spiritually attuned right. than some of the other arguments of ancient aliens. But yet, as I said, it's inherently inconsistent logically inconsistent and and it's just you know logically it sounds uh, incredulous to, to say that right right yeah so, uh, so okay. that's where he's coming from and uh, i'll just mention that the prior chapter sets all this up by talking about we haven't talked about lovecraft we probably should talk about lovecraft but the idea of alistair crowley and and uh, kenneth grant there there's no notion of uh, uh of thelema uh their sort of satanic luciferic religion all this stuff all connects. It all connects with what Coppins was going to DMT and inner space and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's interesting because uh, I believe Tom Horn was the the guy who pointed out that Terrence McKenna had talked about in the future we won't need to take these psychotropic drugs because mm-hmm. you know we'll have chips in our brains, right, and we'll have direct yeah, contact yeah. with them. So. Well, it all kind of converges. I, I'm not sure if I'd agree with Tom on that, although I do agree that, you know, the idea of being chipped and being able to communicate um, sort of through mental telepathy. Right. That's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the, the, you know, the fringe bleed over between the technology and the paranormal. But, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that a lot of people would just, would suppose that they're doing that just for sort of the functionality of being able to communicate on the internet wirelessly. This was, this was expressly, to be able to contact aliens, and that is the religion of Crowley. It is for that primary purpose. It is to encounter these entities and to demonstrate your power over them, that you can control them. The same that that John Dee, who was you know Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth I, he was her occultist, magician, and all that. He he developed the Sunakian magic um, and so forth. But Crowley was. Uh, that's what they were all about. It was about to contact the extraterrestrials that, that lived interdimensionally, and that is their religion. That is where they get off, is on uh, encountering the others. Right, right, absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, Jeffrey James actually wrote, uh, he was the one that published the 
uh, I guess the English translation of John D and Edward Kelly's, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the angel language. And he actually, yeah. it, I actually quote him in the film as well, you know, just talking about different things that are being channeled. And, uh, he, he argues that it's the closest thing to an actual angelic language that, uh, that he's ever seen. And he actually tried to sort of pitch it to the academics. Uh, but you know, of course the academics had nothing of it, but, um, <laughs> You, you know, really catch down on your grant, right? <laughs> right. You, you right. Know, when you go that go that that way, yeah. I mean, he's he's a you know Jeffrey James is an author for Wired magazine and, and New York Times and stuff like that. So he's 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 established in that sense. But yeah. um, but it is interesting because uh, you know, in in my study of you know the the whole idea of alchemy and and technology and stuff like that, it right. seems as if the the whole idea or perception of uh, spirituality is returning you know, very heavily in the scientific realm. And that's why, you know, I, I talk about alchemy because, you know, there's uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake and uh, Philip Ashley Fanning, Dr. Fred Allen Wolf. Uh, these are some of the people I quote, it's, you know, and also you got the Dalai Lama talking about it. Um, yeah. You know, there's just a lot of people coming out and saying, look, you know, uh, materialism is not the answer. You know, uh, Dr. Right. Charles Taft in 2009 came out with uh, the end of materialism, how evidence of the paranormal is bringing right. science and spirit together. So, you know, the whole consensus is that in the next, you know, couple decades or so, materialism is no longer going to be the sort of uh, leading uh, scientific view of rea- reality. It's going to actually become a little right. more pantheistic or monistic or, or something of yeah. that nature. Yeah. Well, yeah. certainly you've seen, I've kind of observed, I'm a little older than you guys probably, uh, I've observed this to some extent, um, the book like the Tao of Physics, uh, there's a Fritzsche Copra, there's been you know, a lot of books that have been written over the last 30, 40 years that are you know, essentially the, the books behind the New Age, um, the Aquarian Conspiracy. And, and so these ideas aren't new, but they, they are gaining new adherence. And there are, uh, as we talked about, there are certain scientific experiments that are beginning to prove. I know um, Picnic and Prince talk about it in... Uh, they're, one of their latest books called The Forbidden Universe, they talk about alchemy as the uh, kind of the basis for chemistry and for modern science. Have you read that book, Don? I actually haven't. That's a really good uh, no, you source read there. read that book. It's, a very, it's very clearly written, uh, The Forbidden Universe, and it, it, it does a great job of explaining kind of how alchemy fed into uh, the notion of, of uh, you know, kind of the nature of the universe. And it really does provide a historical kind of context for why uh, scientists are so close to, whether they admit it or not, they, they tend to be stepping on the toes of, of the alchemists and the paranormal. They're, they're very, very close together. And, um, and so it kind of gives you that context. And so, so I recommend that. Yeah, my whole, my whole thesis for the film is actually that the Philosopher's Stone is the mark of the beast. So... That's um, interesting. Well, I'll be anxious to, to observe your film. Yeah, and, yeah, it's uh, it's coming together. Yeah. It's coming yeah. together. Um, That's good. But uh, moving on, you know, let's let's dive in a little bit to um, you know, I guess it ties together some of the biblical uh, mm-hmm. aspects of Mars, and also you know David Flynn, who's so influential in that in that regard. You know, you, you cite early on. I think you write in your preface. You quote Ezekiel twenty eight fourteen, where it says, uh, "You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst." of the stones of fire you walked. And I know David Flynn was the, I guess he was one of the first people to suggest that the stones of fire are the planets. Is that, is that a view that you hold on to, or is that just a speculative thing? 
Yeah, well, it's it, it's both. I mean, I think it's speculative. I don't think you can be dogmatic, but I think it's a very legitimate interpretation <clears throat> of of that uh, of that verse in Ezekiel. We know that you know the, the that verse in Ezekiel. I believe it's Ezekiel twenty eight, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, twenty eight fourteen. Yeah, and um, and then there's of course a whole chapter in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah fourteen that deals a lot with the with Satan, the five I will, right. and, and so forth. But yeah, I think um, you know the the notion that somehow. Um, Lucifer was the cherub that oversaw perhaps not just the solar system, but beyond the solar system, uh, but somehow got locked into the solar system and eventually to the earth itself. And, um, and that, that there was some sort of judgment, uh, against Lucifer and, um, and I, by the way, I, I listened to enough of the program from a year ago to, to realize kind of the direction you were going to that, and that's pretty much the direction I would go as well, that, you know, that there, there probably was a pre-Adamic race, that uh, there was a planet, uh, the scientist involved was a guy named Tom Van Flandern, uh, and I have a whole chapter on the whole issue of, of the Cosmic War, uh, the theories of uh, Joseph P. Farrell, and uh, the whole issue of, you know, how might that have happened, when might it have happened, and so on. So I get into, into great detail um, there towards the end of the book, talking about talking about that, but, but yeah, that that's the idea. That's where the asteroid belt came from. Came from. I think Flynn was not the first to concoct that idea. That idea has actually been around for a couple of hundred years. That that was the supposition is that there was a planet that's in that um, gap between Mars and Jupiter, and that it was destroyed somehow. Uh, and Mars, of course, shows these telltale signs of a of a great catastrophe. Uh, all kinds of things that suggest that Mars was uh, was obliterated at one time. The question is, is when was it? And I get into a discussion uh, citing the work of Robert Schock and um, and a few others um, that have done work to suggest that that it might not have been as long ago as Van Flandern suggested. Van Flandern actually suggested there are two exploding planets. One of them exploded 65 million years ago, and it was probably closer in, and it may have been, it may have resulted in the uh, the uh, asteroid that hit Earth and killed the dinosaurs and ended the, the age of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. If you if you uh, subscribe to evolutionary time date stamping, you might say. The other one that Van Flander talked about was the uh, the explosion of of what is known as either Planet X or Planet K. Um, which was Flynn called it Rahab, um, and it was the it, that planet may have blown up 3.2 million years ago, according to the calculations of of Van Flandert. Mike Barra, in his most recent book, uh, proposes that the the Martian uh, you know uh, face was was hit about 1.35 million years ago. So that's his update. What Farrell talks about, and then there's some pretty good evidence, um, is that that the planet might have exploded as recently as 10, 10 to 12,000 years ago, and that there's evidence that observers on Earth, now this would be a pre-Adamic race, more than likely, intelligent enough to paint, uh, you know, make paintings on, on walls of caves, that they recorded the event in hieroglyphs and in cave paintings in the Easter Islands, in Egypt, uh, all around the world, there are these evidences that they saw these sort of arcing plasma displays that would look like these sort of giant aurora borealises 
but they were impacting the earth and they were recorded about 10 to 12,000 years ago. So the supposition for the people that, you know, believe in Atlantis and all that was that perhaps there was this great catastrophe. Uh, it was recorded by a pre-Adamic race and cave, cave paintings and cave drawings. Um, but as Farrell talks about, he said the, the issue you've got with Van Flanderen's thing is that let's assume for a second that, that Van Flanderen is correct. There was an exploding planet that happened 3.2 million years ago. It doesn't explain why you had all these obser- observers that probably lived at the latest 20,000 years ago that recorded these sort of cosmic solar events that you know that the electromagnetic displays in the heavens, <clears throat> and that they were similar. And that they kind of connect to the thunderbolts of Zeus and some other uh, ideas, but those had to have happened in the, within the last, let's say, twelve, ten to twenty thousand years, because uh, we can more or less date those those cave drawings. And so that catastrophe may well have happened much more recently. So Farrell points that out. So for those of us that subscribe to the concept of the gap theory. The idea that the, that the earth was somehow disrupted, destroyed, all of life on earth disappeared, and that God had to come in, and starting with Genesis 1-2, and in effect recreate the earth, uh, separate the waters from the waters, restore the land, etc., cetera, and so on. Right. Um, that, that that is what Genesis is describing, is the recreation of the world, and it happened after this massive destruction on the planet you know, planet Earth, but the reason it happened on planet Earth is that Earth was hit by the debris field from this exploding planet right. that may have happened 3.2 million years ago, or may have happened 10 or 12,000 years ago, uh-huh. and it was observed, and then it was, then the planet was destroyed, and um, and so it, it, it's really an intriguing discussion, and I get into that, into, in the, in the whole discussion of um, the cosmic war and uh, try to summarize what is very difficult material. Joseph Farrell's material is very challenging. It's not, it's not easy material to read, but I try to summarize it and try to talk about the, some of the science behind the idea and why it might be, in fact, a viable theory and, and how it connects to you know, the whole issue of Mars and so on. But it would, it would obviously dramatically change our views of the origin of humankind uh, if we were able to prove that, you know, this planet did blow up and there was a civilization that existed on that planet and that existed to some extent on the planet Mars, which was earlier just a, a moon of this planet, Rahab. Right. And that somehow the, um, the debris field, even the water, because supposedly this planet was a water world of type, that it helped create a massive flood on the Earth as the Earth passed through this debris field. And uh, in that it was, you know, part of the judgment of God against this planet, against Lucifer, against his uh, his his horde, and uh, and that the Earth had to be recreated, and the uh, Homo sapiens sapiens was created uh, with Adam and Eve, and yeah. uh, roughly six seven thousand years ago. Huh. That's fascinating. Now, in regards to ETs. And um, beings from or on or uh, what have you, Mars, what do you touch on with that in the book? I mean, uh, with the prevailing theory for the great deception uh, sort of ethos is 
that these are de- demonic and you know some right. say they're actually physical some say they're not physical some say they're more sort of biological robots to be inhabited i mean wh- where do you land on that <laughs> well um you know it's, it's interesting we'll go back to coppins for a second his ideas you know he sort of denies that there could be physicality to these beings that they're you know that they're these uh, in, the, in the visions and the trances that we have we see them we can talk to them but they're eternal they're not physical um, my view is that they're both, is that they, they do, um, come to people in, uh, inner visions and so forth, um, but that they materialize as well. Certainly if you were to talk to Ellie Marzulli, you would see a combination of both. You know that alien abductions, David Jacobs, his research, um, there are, there's examples where it appears to be purely a, a journey of the mind. Then there are examples where there are physical artifacts left behind, uh, radiation readings, uh, alien implants, uh, people that are actually missing from their bedroom for several hours. Uh, their families go looking for them, and lo and behold, they pop back up in the bedroom with no memory of what occurred until later under hypnosis. They explain all these alien abduction experiences and so on. So, uh, and I, I raise a whole bunch of questions. The idea that even if our if it's true that our minds help to somehow handshake with uh, the paranormal such that it creates a physical reality that is predominantly paranormal. Certainly if you go study the, a lot of the channelers, the mediums, you know, in the 1890s when spiritualism or spiritualism was so popular, there's always this sense that, that the humans together collectively sort of do a, you know, a Spockian mind meld and they sort of bring these entities into our physical world. They, they leave the ectoplasm behind, you know, the green slime. And, uh, and so there's sort of a physical attribute, but it takes a lot of mental energy to keep them in this dimension. Mm-hmm. As soon as that, that channel is sort of broken, literally, then they sort of dissolve back into a different dimension. Right. So there, there seems to be sort of a, a doorway, a portal that gets opened and these, uh, these beings come into. And certainly I'm, I'm very wary of, you know, friends of mine that work in the, you know, sort of deliverance realm and spiritual warfare, they will certainly talk about that demons feed off of fear. Right. And that, you know, if you are afraid, that supplies, it's like a battery, it supplies, it supplies uh, charge to their uh, kind of corporeal nature or becoming sort of corporeal mm-hmm. bodies. And so there's some phenomenon there, and I think it's very involved in the UFO thing as well. So, you know, are UFOs physical? Yes. Many times I think they are. Uh, are they interdimensional? I think yes, they are. Uh, are there some, is there some sort of paranormal aspect to them? I think definitely there is. And uh, so it's right. not a pure case of yes or no. It's sort of a combination. Right. And I was going to ask just to, to clarify, um, in your opinion, how that connects to, say, the Area 51, the ETs who uh, allegedly work with the government on technological things, and or just Mars in general? Right. Well, you know, th- this is where you get into, there's a lot of things in, in my book that I'm able to more or less provide kind of historical substantiation for. And, right. You know, plausible, you know, this is a plausible theory and this is not. You know, you get into the whole issue of, you know, are the, do the ETs already live among us? Uh, are they already involved in the military? If you talk to someone like Stan Dale or Steve Quayle, um, they're certainly going to tell you, I think, you know, unashamedly, and, and you know, that, yeah, they're, they're already here. They already work. They're already amongst us. The, 
it was the Whitney, Whitney Stryber, um, you know, that's written a number of books on this book that he wrote on hybrids. I thought was great, um, a great fiction, you know, camp. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there's, there's something to it. I kind of have a wait and see attitude. I, I suspect that, uh, you know, we haven't talked much about remote viewing, but remote viewing, um, and the, the sort of the, the scene of these beings interacting with them, um, their physicality, uh, yeah, I suspect there's something to it. I just don't think we're ever going to prove it, at least not, maybe not on this side of the rapture if you're a pre-trib uh, person like me. Uh, right. you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's reserved for sort of uh, the revealing of the Antichrist and the whole new worldview, the whole new cosmology that comes into play um, when some of these truths are, uh, or falsehoods are disclosed as truths. Right. Okay. All right, so you got kind of a, you're not going to preach it from the rooftops that... Uh, no, I, I, I have not personally talked to anyone that's in the military that, you know, and Stan, and I think Steve have, uh-huh. um, that talk about this in detail. I have not had those experiences. Now, I've talked with people from the military, a person in specific, that used the remote viewing crew out of the, out of the, the uh, Army uh, intelligence group out of uh, out of Maryland right. uh, in the 1970s that existed then probably still does exist. Um, so I know that that is in fact that, that that's true. I know that there's no question about that. But the idea that aliens have been here for some time that there was in fact an alien agreement that was made uh, in the part of the Magic Twelve, uh, Eisenhower, um, you know all that. I I just. You know, of course, the, the the big event of this last year was the citizens' hearing on on disclosure, and right, right, Stephen yeah. Bassett and all that. Uh, you know, there's a lot to that. I I think that there are real experiences. I think you know the uh, the gentleman, Doctor Lear, that that works uh, appears on on LA's um, DVDs and the Watcher series that removes the you know the is these implants. Do I believe those implants really are there? Yeah, I actually do. Um, they're very physical. They're very advanced. They appear to have some kind of a, you might say, either a GPS or a monitoring capability. I, I don't know. Uh, but we don't know exactly what they are, but they, they seem to be real. They seem to be a result of alien abduction. And, um, and so I think there is, a, there is a physicality and a reality to that. I don't know that even if it's proven that it happens, let's say that, you know, Dr. Lear, because he has these implants, and let's say that a science group, uh, an objective naturalist, atheistic scientist went in and said, "Yep, that's uh, you know that that material is at least 65 million years old. It had to form somewhere in the distant part of the galaxy, which is kind of, by the way, what they say about the material that came through the portal at Rockwell in 1947. Yeah. That you know that this sort of proves that these are beings far away, many light years away. They're from Aldebaran, 65 million light years away. Blah blah blah." You know, it's just part of, I think, what will be the, uh, you know, the, the deception is, uh, well, we have these physical artifacts that prove that the stuff really happened. It's very fun, et cetera. So, but my, my point is, I don't think you're going to see that appear on Fox News or CNN anytime soon. I you think, don't think so, huh? Not anytime soon. I think it's, it's part of the signs and lying wonders, you know, which yeah. is where the book title comes from. Um, that will appear in the very, very last days. Um, and so I think we're seeing very strong hints that's going to come to pass, but I'm not expecting it to be uh, on popular television you know, in the next, next few weeks. Right. At least not presented as fact. 
No, you know, I, I, I argue, you know, the, this whole discussion, I think is a, is a worthy discussion on its own. Uh, it'd be fun to do it sometime with Tom Horn in LA about whether disclosure is going to be an all at once fanfare. Here it is in your face. The aliens are real. We've had a, you know, a pact with the aliens. We've been talking to them for years. We work with them and so forth and so on. You know, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I, I tend to believe that disclosure is happening. It's happening slowly. It's continuing to happen. There will be a time where it becomes sort of an incontrovertible fact, but I don't, you know, I, I just tend to believe in disclosure bit by bit, and that's kind of how I conclude my book. Mm. And that's interesting because, you know, as L.A. often talks about, you know, uh, the day the, the UFOs are over the major cities and it's going to be this big, you know, game changer. Right. Uh, and, you know, we all sort of have thought about, you know, oh my gosh, what are we going to do that day? Right. You know, are we going to, you know, pull out our Bibles and start running around? So uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. Uh, but you're, I think you're right in that, you know, disclosure is happening. More and more people are actually becoming privy to, you know, the mm-hmm. potential realities of extraterrestrials, all this stuff. And, right. and, you know, and I do think that you're right in some sense that I think it'll be artifacts uh, that are either discovered or, um, you know, proven to be from an ancient past that is beyond, you know, what we thought and stuff like that. So I, I think it's both and, you know, it's possible right. that there will be that day, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily bank on it. But right. at the same time, I do think stuff is going on uh, yeah. with the Internet and everything else that it is, you know, people are privy to this, uh, right. you know, the the poll in, in England uh, last year that said more than 50% of uh, uh, people in England, at least in that, in that poll said that they believe in aliens more than they believe in God. So, right. you know, it's already kind of happening in the, well, the psyche. That, you know, that kind of justifies, you know, why I, I wrote a book on the subject because um, that's what's happening. And uh, it's not uh, being shattered from the mountaintops, but it's, it's creeping in. And um, that's, I think that is a pretty important empirical data point that there are more people now that believe in the reality of E.T. than they believe in the reality of the God of the Bible. You know, if they believe in Jesus at all, they just assume Jesus was an E.T. Um, right. And so, you know, that is, that's why we believe that, you know, whether it's disclosed all at once or it's disclosed bit by bit, um, you know, it is being disclosed. It is changing minds. And what I'm hoping to do is to show through Mars and through the, the history of this, that this is not, you know, an event that's just happened. It's been going on for a long time. There's a context to it. There's lessons to be learned through this, this disclosure. Uh, how, you know, it is a giant, uh, you know, giant deception, and it's been going on for almost 150 years. And uh, it just happens to be more in our face now than ever before because our technology, our ability to perceive it, to prove it. Uh, our science is the point now where we can begin to verify some of these things, and so it, it makes its truth, if you will, more compelling to us than ever before. But despite that fact, it's kind of like crop circles. You know, you can argue that Dave and Doug are the guys that out there with their big floppy you know, feet and, uh, and boards <laughs> Paddle, yeah. out there making you know, <laughs> crop circles, or you can believe that somebody super intelligent has the ability to do that in a matter of minutes uh, and encode all kinds of interesting information in it, and you can decide which of those is the more plausible explanation. Um, so, you know, I think that that's kind of what it's going to come down to, is that we're going to be presented with 
more and more phenomenon that you can't explain naturalistically. Um, you, you know, the, the skeptic is going to begin to look like a fool. And that's when it becomes obvious that a Christian is going to have to really decide that what we've been talking about, what we believe about the nature of God, is uh, his person, uh, his coming you know, to us in the form of Jesus Christ to address the problem of evil, uh, not just the not just the problem of being um, you know lack of being centered or being in touch with ourselves, but there really is this problem of evil that uh, you know the gospel is the truth or it's not you know that's where we're going to be and we're we're coming to that point now very rapidly. Absolutely, definitely. Um, well, let's let's wrap things up. One last question for you: Do you uh, do you see Mars in the Book of Revelation at all anywhere? <laughs> not per se. I, I don't see it in the Book of Revelation per se. Um, you know, Mars is, um, obviously is the mythology associated with Mars. Um, you know, if we had time, I chose not to write much about this, but there's a very strong historical precedent to suggest that Mars was, uh, Nimrod and, uh, Nimrod finds his way into several of the gods, but, but, uh, very likely, uh, Mars, Marduk, um, you know, a number of the gods really referenced Nimrod. And so there, there is this connection between the Antichrist and Mars, the red planet, the planet of war, uh, the god of forces, which is really the god of military forces, in my, my view, not necessarily the god of pantheistic forces. But I, so I see lots of connections, but not like, you know, the black sun, blood moon, you know, that there's a blood moon, that's really Mars. No, I wouldn't say that. I, I think there really will be a series of blood moons that are actually going to be happening here very shortly now in a matter of months. Right. So, uh, but I don't see it per se. But I think Mars... The issue of the artifacts, the stories of Andrew Bashago, uh, all these things are just creating, they are opening the mind. They are breaking open the head, to use Daniel Pinchbeck's term, and they're making our willingness to believe much, much more malleable. So I, I think people are going to be in a state of eagerness to believe. They're going to find the Christian, Judeo Christian worldview just no longer for them holds water. They want something that they can sink their teeth into that has some evidence, some proof, uh, and lo and behold, ancient alien theory is going to come along and it's going to attempt to give them that proof. All right. Well, there you have it. That's Douglas Woodward. Thanks a lot, Doug. He's the author of Lying Wonders of the Red Planet, Mars, Ancient Aliens, and the Great Deception of the Last Days. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Douglas. My pleasure. Hope to do it again. Absolutely, and we will hear more from you later. And uh, where can we find your book and what date is it coming out? Yeah. Well, let's see. Um, it's going to be out probably by January the 12th, something like that, on uh, Amazon. You'll find it there. Uh, it'll be sold through Prophecy in the News. Uh, Prophecy in the News is also going to Prophecy, News.com. They're also going to make an offer where uh, the lecture I did last summer in, uh, at uh, Pikes Peak, the conference will be part of it. And there's also a uh, DVD that, that I have called uh, Transforming Humanity into Gods that also talks about kind of the religious motivation behind all of this uh, program, and that'll be part of the offer, uh, offer as well. But look for it on Amazon. I have a bunch of books out there. S, as in Stephen Douglas Woodward. That's how they find me. That sounds good. All right, there you have it, folks. You heard it first here on Canary Cry Radio. One more time. Thanks again, Douglas Woodward. Thank you. It went fast, huh? Lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah I know. The cosmic war, and what all that really means, and the fact that he really probably went to Shell rather than to Mars, and 
Oh, wow, yeah, I didn't even... All kinds of interesting things to talk about, yeah. Right, yeah, well, we'll save that for next time, then. All right. So many of you are aware of episode 21, where we did... Wow, that's a long time ago, Guns. Yeah, that's uh, 40 40 episodes ago. Incredible. Okay, episode 21 was the Mars episode, and it's just chock full of all sorts of craziness. And this is a great supplement to that. Mr. Douglas Woodward himself said that episode 21 was um, worth giving a listen to. So if you haven't done that, we'll put the link down in the show notes. Make sure to go to canarycryradio.com and check that out. Um, And there you go. You'll be all caught up on your Mars uh, conspiracy and spiritual significance slash crazy people information well there you have it folks thanks for listening to this episode of canary cry radio and uh, make sure to tune in next time for another awesome episode and until then think outside the cage the views and opinions expressed by the authors and guests on this program are not necessarily those held by the hosts of Canary Cry Radio or its community. Make sure to visit CanaryCryRadio.com for show notes, episode archives, forums, and more. <laughs> you, can, you can contact us by clicking on the contact tab or emailing us directly at CanaryCryRadio at gmail.com. If this episode touched your life, your worldview, or your beating little heart in any way, please consider supporting the show financially. You can do so by visiting CanaryCryRadio.com and clicking on the support tab. There you can sign up for a small monthly donation. Or if commitment is just not your thing, you can leave a one-time donation in any amount. Canary Cry Radio is and will always be free, so your support, and we need it really bad right now because I lost my job, is what keeps us on the air. So make sure to catch the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. Until then, think outside the cage. <laughs> Had a lot of coffee this morning. Apparently. <laughs> what kind of coffee are you having? Coffee's a heck of a drug, everybody. Crack coffee? Mars, 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 Mars. That's me um, communicating with Martians. <laughs> Mars, 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 Mars. That's their their whole language. Smars is the the word they have. So Mars, they Mars, 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 Mars. <laughs> <laughs>